Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. for today's teaching is Mark 9, 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had arisen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does, not, does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of God to us. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline. It's good to have you with us today. Uh, One of the things that happens a lot, we get a lot of questions about why we structure our gatherings the way that we do with times like confession and assurance or uh, times where we're reciting prayers together or whatever. And for us, it's not like a denominational thing. That's a church history thing. If you look at the church throughout history, the church has always had prayers that they pray together and times where it's not just like a person standing up to do the ministry, but realizing that collectively we're doing that together. And the reason why I think that's so significant is because you and I are shaped constantly. We're formed constantly by culture and by what's happening in our world. And this moment as we gather together is actually a moment of counter formation where we're getting to be formed in a new way. We're getting to be formed into the way of Jesus. And even taking something like confession and assurance, you know, we, sometimes people say, why do you guys beat yourself up all the time? It's all you do is like, wow, we're so bad. We're so bad. Well, that's not what's happening at all. Think about our culture for just a minute with something like sin, when we don't have a category for that. Uh, What happens when someone has a failure, whether it's moral or otherwise, we as a culture, the only thing we know how to do is have outrage and cancel that person. There's no room for uh, honest confession of sin and then then getting to be received and welcomed back in to the community or into the family or whatever. What we just did together was powerful because we said, hey, we actually did fail this week. We actually do have brokenness. We actually do have things in our lives that we are embarrassed of or ashamed of or that we're wrong or we missed the mark. And yet, instead of just going low, in that moment, the gospel brings us high, doesn't it? And it's reminding us that 
we're way worse than we want to believe, but we're also so much more loved than we could even imagine. And that's what's happening in this moment is we're not walking around pretending that we've not done anything wrong. We're also not walking around thinking all we've done is wrong and we have no value or worth or whatever, but it's actually something that takes us properly low and brings us back high. Does that make sense? So I I hope that that helps you kind of understand why we do some of the things that we do if you're new, trying to wrestle, trying to figure it all out. Love that you're here. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna be in Mark chapter nine, verses two through 13. So if you have a Bible, grab that or a device and head over to Mark nine. I wanna take a second and pray for us as we look at this really bizarre, bizarre, strange story in Mark nine. Maybe the most bizarre yet. So let me pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word, and uh, I want to thank you for the people in the room that are here, that are wrestling, that are wanting to follow you, that, uh, like me, want to follow you, but more often than not, fail. And we pray today, God, that you would fill us and shape us and help us. And for the ones in the room that legitimately have questions, like legitimately wrestle with some of this stuff, would you meet them, remind them that they don't need to check their brain in at the door? to be a follower of Jesus, but we pray that you would meet them in their doubts and meet them in their skepticism. And we pray that today you would draw us, all of us, more underneath your heart. So come and move. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So I've got, I've got three kids. Most of you that know me know that. Uh, I've got an almost 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 4-year-old little boy, two girls and a boy. My middle daughter, Eleanor, uh, the other day asked me, she said, how does, uh, she said, what is the internet and how does it work? And so I I tried to start to answer the question. And as I was explaining how the internet worked, it went something like this. Well, there's these really big buildings that have the internet inside of them and these like machine things. And those machine things are called servers. And the servers push the internet out through these wires, these cables that run all over the world, uh, down into the ground. They come into our house. And then that wire plugs into this other machine called a router And then the router sends the internet in the air into my phone or into my laptop. And that's how the internet works. And she's just looking at me like she takes my word for it, you know? And I'm realizing as I'm answering this question that A, I know a a shocking little amount about the internet. And B, like, isn't, isn't it crazy how often like we try to describe something that we all believe in and we all know exists. And sometimes you're just like, I think I sound like a crazy person right now. Here's why I tell you that story. As we approach this text and this story about the transfiguration of Jesus, I want you to pause for just a minute and remember that there are all kinds of things that we believe in as a people that we experience on a day-to-day basis that when you try to explain it, it's beyond your comprehension and you fail with words and you sound a little bit crazy. I think Peter, the apostle, must have felt a similar deal. He is describing to John Mark, the author of this letter, with words that he doesn't even know how to use about this event that happened. And and what's so crazy about this event is like a few years ago, I was meeting with a good buddy of mine who is an atheist, who actually still is an atheist. But he was, he's what I describe like uh, a haunted skeptic. Do you know what I mean? Like he's an atheist. He doesn't believe, but he has doubts about his doubts. He has doubts about his unbelief. And so we were meeting over coffee to process some of the stuff in scripture, and he was raising really good questions and really good objections. And ironically enough for him, this was one of those stories that he just said, I don't, I don't understand it, and I can't believe it. Like, I just, I can't get there. I can't believe 
that two guys that were dead, like Moses and Elijah, show up and have a conversation with Jesus, and he's glowing, and it's weird, and he just couldn't believe it. So maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here today, and as we read that text together, you thought, this is weird, this is confusing. And if that's you, man, welcome to you, first of all. And for all of us, can we just humble ourselves for just a minute and remember that we don't even understand how the internet works. Now, maybe some of you do. I I know some of you are nerdy enough to actually understand how it works, but most of us don't, and yet we believe it. So let's humble ourselves as we approach this story with a bit of humility and openness to whatever it is that we're supposed to learn from this text. So in light of that, before we work our way through verse by verse, I wanna remind you of the context of this story because where this story lands in the gospel of Mark is absolutely significant to what's happening in this story itself. Uh, If you remember, Mark is split up into two sections. You have part one, which is saying, uh, the king has arrived and his name is Jesus. The whole first part of the gospel of Mark is, is unveiling this reality. The king has arrived. The Messiah, the Christ, is here, and his name is Jesus. And then there's a turning point, and we go to part two of this book. And in part two, it's, yes, the king has arrived. His name is Jesus, but he's not like you think. The king is here, but he is not what you expected. And this is the second half. And, and, and what we're in in this section of Mark over the last few weeks is that long journey as we go from part one to part two. We haven't even landed yet into part two. We're still in the transition between part one and part two. And in the middle of that, there's this weird story, if you remember, of a blind man who got healed in Mark chapter eight. Do you remember that story? Uh, he, he goes from being blind to then getting partially healed by Jesus to then getting fully healed by Jesus. And that really happened, but it serves as a metaphor or a lived out picture of what discipleship to Jesus is like for his own disciples. That they're going from being blind to who Jesus is, to slowly having their eyes open, but things are blurry, to eventually being able to see Jesus for who he really is. And this is one of those stories that lands right in this spot to again serve as this thing of saying, hey, I'm gonna open up the eyes of the disciples to who Jesus really is. I want you to see who Jesus really is. This is another story of God being patient with his disciples to unveil for them their blindness so that they can know who Jesus is. So with that in mind, with that context and background in our heads, let's jump in verse two and work our way through this story. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Peter, James, and John, there are, within the disciples, there are the three, which are like Jesus's closest companions, the guys that he's occasionally taking off uh, outside of the other group and having conversations with or showing them things. Then there's the 12, his disciples. Then there's the 70 or the 72. Then there's the crowds, right? So there's all these different categories. So Jesus here, six days have passed, and he grabs Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, it's interesting that it says six days have passed. So you're meant to remember what happened six days before this. And if you remember six days before this, Jesus had grabbed that blind man and he'd led him out of the village. And here what he's doing six days after that is he's grabbing a few of his disciples and he's leading them out of Caesarea Philippi and he's taking them up on a high mountain. We don't know what mountain. uh, Most scholars think Mount Hermon. It was almost 10,000 feet up right outside of Caesarea Philippi. So this is a hike for Jesus and the disciples to go all the way up to almost 
10,000 feet. Now, whenever you see that concept of a mountain, this was a big deal for anyone who'd been reading the story up to this point because mountains in the ministry of Jesus play just a significant role. It's interesting how significant mountains play in the life and ministry of Jesus. For example, Jesus slips away to pray on a mountain. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount, you guessed it, on a mountain. He is tempted, actually, by Satan on a mountain. There's a few other places where he's tempted, but one of the spots is up high on a mountain. He calls his 12 disciples from a mountain. He commissions his disciples for the work of ministry and mission from a mountain. And ultimately, Jesus is crucified on a mountain. So the idea here is when you see Jesus take three disciples and go up on a high mountain, you're almost supposed to be on the edge of your chair a little bit. What's about to happen? Something significant is waiting for us. What is going on? So look at what happens. Let's keep going. Verse two. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus was transfigured before them. What on earth does that mean? What does it mean to be transfigured before his disciples? Well, the word that's used here for transfigured is a Greek word where we get our English word metamorphosis. It's the idea that you go into intense change, something changes. And I don't know if you think of this. When I think of metamorphosis, I always think of a caterpillar in the cocoon going into a butterfly, right? That's just in my head, I think of that. And so it's easy for us to think that in this moment, Jesus is becoming something that he was not before, that he's getting revealed as something that he wasn't before, but that's actually not the case at all. It's not that Jesus is having a change where he's going from something that's just human to more than that. Actually, the metamorphosis and the change that's happening here is that people are really for the first time seeing who he has always been but it's been hidden from view up to this point. Let me explain it like this. Here's a photo I want to show you. Do you know what that is? I don't know if you realize this, but that's sand. Like sand from the beach. Like sand that looks brown when you walk on it. Put under a microscope and it looks spectacular. It looks like that. No one would ever look at sand and think that that was there the whole time. It's not that putting sand underneath a microscope all of a sudden changes the core essence of what sand is. It's that you get to see what's been underneath the surface, hiding in plain sight the whole time. And that is what's happening here in this story with the transfiguration. For the first time, Jesus's disciples are realizing that he's not just human, although he is that, He's not just the Messiah, although he is. He's not just the Christ, but something more is at play here. Jesus is fully human. He's this Messiah, but also he is God in the flesh. And they've not seen this up to this point. It's helpful to remember the Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, as we think about this. Remember that line where it says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That it was there the whole time. Jesus is human, but he's God, and he's human and God meeting together in the same person called Jesus. And and up to this point, no one has known that. It's just like there's Jesus walking around in a village, and no one would look at that and think, oh, that's God. They would just say, that's some random dude from Galilee. And yet for the first time on this mountain, the disciples are realizing there's more at play here to this Messiah. He's not just the Messiah. He is God come for us in human flesh. And that's why uh, it, it's, this description is important that his, he had this radiant 
an intensely white glow coming off of him. It says in Luke and in Matthew that record the same story, that Jesus' face was shining in this moment, emanating with glory in this moment. And, and you think, why, why is that in there? Well, if you read Daniel chapter 7, there's this description of God as the ancient of days, and God coming in glory as the ancient of days. And it talks about how his clothes are intensely white and radiant, and his face was shining. Any avid reader of the Old Testament would get to the story, and it's like two and two are coming together. Oh my gosh, we're not just dealing with a human Messiah. We are talking about God in human flesh. Let's keep going and look at verse four. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Wouldn't you love to know what they were talking with Jesus about? Elijah, Moses, Jesus, like, let's just sit in on that conversation for a minute. Verse five, and Peter said to Jesus, I love Peter, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then I love this, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. There are times where some people don't know what to say, so they say nothing, which is a good decision most of the time. Peter doesn't know what to say, so he just talks, right? He's like, yeah, should we like make some tents for you guys? Like I could get one for you and one for those guys and we could all just like hang out here for a little bit. Like he just doesn't know what to say. He's freaked out. So he just starts talking nonsense, right? For he did not know what to say for they were terrified. Verse seven, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, Looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Three things I want you to see in this text. The first one is the confession, the confession. Remember, six days prior to this, Jesus was walking with his disciples and he asked them the question, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And all kinds of interesting answers were thrown out. And then Jesus turns the corner a little bit and he says, okay, that's, that's what people say about me. Who do you say that I am? And Peter had made his incredible confession. Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You are the Christ. That was six days ago. And now, now it's God the Father's turn to make his own confession about who Jesus is. Six days later, God the Father wants to clear the air and make sure that there's no confusion. This is my son. Now, it's interesting that only twice in Mark does God the Father speak directly to earth, only twice in Mark. The first one was in chapter 1, verse 11. And this was at Jesus' baptism. If you remember, he comes out of the water, and it's very, very particular what God the Father says. Look at it in Mark 1, 11. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Who is God the Father talking directly to? Jesus, you are my beloved son. This is spoken directly to Jesus for his own personal benefit. This is fascinating to think about. Jesus is going to start out his earthly ministry with the phrase ringing in his ears every time he lays a hand on a sick person to heal them. Every time he, he touches someone to offer them forgiveness, every time he teaches a sermon, every time he, he confronts the religious leaders of his day and they're, they're pushing back on him and misunderstanding him and twisting his words, every time Jesus lives throughout his earthly life and ministry, this phrase ringing in his head, I am the Father's beloved son and he's well pleased with me. Before I do anything, before I heal a person, before I cast out a demon, before I raise a person from the dead, I'm beloved and he's pleased. 
And this is what, if we're honest, every son and daughter longs to hear from their own father, isn't it? That you are my beloved son or daughter. I'm pleased with you, not because of what you do, not because of all the things that you might accomplish one day. I'm just delighted in you now. This is the father speaking to Jesus, this loving affirmation. But there's a shift, there's a change in chapter 9. Listen to this in chapter 9, verse 7. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. No longer is Jesus the one that's getting directly spoken to here. Who is getting spoken to? The disciples that are there watching. This is the father showing up and saying, I'm not just talking for Jesus' own benefit here. I'm talking for the benefit of the disciples who are like that blind man. They're still not able to see fully. They're still not able to understand fully. And I'm speaking to them right now. This is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. Listen to him. He's pulling back the curtain and saying, this is not just a human Messiah or the Christ. This is God and humanity meeting in the one person of Jesus Christ. This is a mind-blowing experience. They had no category or grid for this type of thing. Now, why are Moses and Elijah here? Isn't that super weird? Like, why Moses and Elijah? There were other options. There's the patriarchs of Israel. You could have had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why Moses and Elijah? Why not King David or other people? There's so many different options. Why these two men specifically? Well, here's why. If you're an avid reader of the Old Testament, like many of Mark's original audience would have been, they would have had their minds blown when they got to chapter 9. They would have realized exactly what's happening here because there's another story about another man in Exodus 24 who has a very, very, almost identical encounter with the very presence of God. It was Moses. So let's just talk about Moses for just a minute. In the Moses story, Moses encounters the very presence of God also on a high mountain, also with three companions after waiting for six days. And he's addressed by God himself out of a cloud. And listen, when Moses comes down the mountain because he was in the very presence of God, his face was glowing white. And he had to wear a veil because everybody in Israel was freaked out about it. So his face was glowing white. Very similar to this story, although in this story, in the Jesus story, Jesus is, is not glowing because he was in the presence of God. Jesus is glowing because he is the embodiment of the very presence of God. It's actually emanating out from him to other people. This is incredible. Think about this. Moses rejected all the luxuries of the royal Egyptian palace and was sent by God to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt to bondage and to, 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 to bring them safely from death into life. Jesus, likewise, he rejected the luxuries of heaven and was sent by the Father, not to Egypt, but from heaven to this earth to bring us out of our own bondage to Satan's sin and death, to bring us over from death into life. Moses came and he delivered the law to the people of God to help shape and form them as the unique, their unique identity as the people of God in the world but they failed again and again and again to the law. They couldn't keep the commands of the law. So Jesus, as he comes from heaven to this earth, he doesn't come with more law. He comes with the final, ultimate, right interpretation of the law. Remember Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, but I tell you. And then John says that he didn't come with more law. He came with grace and with truth for lawbreakers. Moses, at the end of his earthly ministry, closes out with these words in Deuteronomy. 
the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And yet in this story, what we see is that Jesus is that one that Moses was talking about. And now you have the father saying, listen to him. See, any Old Testament reader would get to the story and be like, Jesus is fulfilling everything that Moses was pointing to. All of the law, it's been building and building and building to get to this moment for this Messiah, who's more than just a Messiah, God in human flesh. What about Elijah? Well, Elijah also was a prophet. He was maybe the most well-known prophet. He functions in many ways as like the leading prophet of the Old Testament. Elijah also encountered God's presence on a high mountain in 1 Kings 19. Elijah was sent by God to confront idolatry and to to take Israel that had basically gotten bed with the pagan nations surrounding it and to bring them out and invite them into repentance and give them a different way of life. This is what Jesus came to do. Israel and you and I were broken and were sinful and were wrapped in idolatry. And yet Jesus comes to not just invite us into a different way, but his very first sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where Moses kind of is representative of all the law and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Elijah represents all of the prophets and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So friends, here's my point. Every bit of Old Testament scripture from Genesis to Malachi, it's been building and building and building and all of it, all the stories, all the narratives, all the things, all the stuff, it's pointing to Jesus. It's all been for him. It's all been about him. Every redemptive figure in the Old Testament is a shadow of this man. Every saving action gives us a glimpse of what's to come in this man. Every promise of God is yes and amen and fulfilled in this man. And every judgment of disobedience, every bit of brokenness on our part is ultimately gonna be absorbed by this man on the cross. And that's why Mark ends it like this. Look at this, Mark Mark 9, verse eight. And suddenly... Looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It's not that Moses and Elijah don't matter. They were never the point. It's just Jesus. This is the whole point. And this must have changed everything for Peter, James, and John. Grew up on stories of Moses and Elijah. And then for them to be pushed behind the scenes and see this Messiah standing there by himself. This changes everything. David Garland said it this way. He said, the Mount of Transfiguration demands a radical shift in the disciples' worldview. They cannot remain the same for such an unthinkable reality had never never before been considered, much less occurred. Jesus, as the Son of God in human form, does not fit into any of their philosophical or religious or theological categories. So they must change. And the change will affect everything, every thought about reality, activity in their religious behavior, every dream and ambition of their personal lives. Here's the point, guys. If Jesus is just a moral teacher, who cares? If he's a religious zealot, who cares? If he's just some political activist that was making a ruckus in the first century, then let him be forgotten. But... If Jesus is full humanity and divinity in the same person, then that changes everything. To quote C.S. Lewis, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's Lord. 
And you and I are now forced, just like you've had Peter getting asked the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And now you've heard God the Father give his confession about who he says Jesus is. It's coming down to you and I. Who do you say that Jesus is? You have to do something with Jesus. That's the first point, is the confession from God the Father. Now, let me pause. And I, I, know, I feel the tension in the room as I look at your faces. Most of you are like, go back on sabbatical. This is boring. We already know this. We believe this already. And if I just were to like do a poll real quick, my guess is that most of you would say, I believe Jesus is God. Like, thank you for the convincing Old Testament background, but I already believe that. Didn't need all the cool stuff. I already thought Jesus was God. Some of you might not think that. Some of you are here and you're wrestling. You're not really sure what you think about the faith or about Jesus. And we are so glad that you're here to wrestle with us. Most of us are already satisfied with the answer that Jesus is the Son of God. So why does this matter? Well, it matters because of what God the Father goes on to say. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Second thing I want you to see is not just the Father's confession, but the Father's call. The call for you and I, in fact, it's the only command in this entire passage for you and for me, it's to listen to Jesus. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem is that you and I live in a world that is essentially a sea of vying, competing voices for our attention. We live in a world where there's voices everywhere. So much content, so much data, it's almost unbearable. In fact, a man by the name of Buckminster, Tom, uh, Buckminster Fuller, rather, was a well-respected systems theorist who coined this phrase, the knowledge doubling curve. The idea was he tried to figure out, like, how long does it take for everything in the world that there is to know to double? And he basically came up with this equation for that. And, 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 and according to him, what he said was that in the first century, it would take about 1,500 years for everything that there is to know to double. In 1900, he said it, he estimated it was probably about 100 years for everything in the world that could be known to double, about 100 years. And then now Google strategists today are saying that everything that there is to know in the world doubles every 12 hours. So think about that. You're going to go to bed tonight and you're going to wake up tomorrow morning. And if you got a tight 12 hours, which if you have kids, then you know that's not a thing. But if you got a tight 12 hours in, everything that could be known would have doubled. And you feel this, don't you? When you read the news, it's like, oh my gosh, like while I was sleeping, a million things happened in our world. You get on Facebook and content and data. You, you have all this stuff that's hitting you at every time. Like your podcast, they keep uploading with new content and new stuff. And, and a book is released and it's like, oh, I can't wait to get that book on that topic. But by the time you buy that book, there's like 12 other books that have been written on that topic. And if you're like me, that stresses you out because you want to read books and you love that stuff. But you can't stay on top of all the content. And then you've got friends You've got professors and you've got people in your life that are all shouting at you with a voice. And what the Father is saying in this text to you and I is that if you are going to agree with his confession that Jesus is the Son of God, if you're going to agree with who he says Jesus is, then you must also listen to him. And not listen to him on par with everybody else. Remember, Moses and Elijah, they fade to the background. Jesus's voice is the most important voice above every other voice. Are you listening to him? You have something that the world is saying, 
You have something that Jesus says, and often these are competing at every single level. Like think about the idea of unforgiveness for a minute. Unforgiveness in our culture, we say, if somebody wrongs you, then they wrong you. And get mad about it. Be bitter about it. Hold on to that. Don't let it go. It's weakness to forgive. It's strength to keep that in and hold it tight. Jesus comes along and he says, actually, that type of anger is the root of murder. And there's a better way. It's to release people and forgiveness. Think about the world says about your enemies. Your enemies, they're, they're mean. They do things to you that are harmful. They hurt you. Like you have a right to be outraged. You have a right to attack. You have a right to go after them. You have a right to wish ill upon your enemies. When bad things happen to them, you should rejoice and celebrate. Jesus shows up with a different voice. And he says, actually, love your enemies. Bless your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. That's a different voice than the voice that you and I are often getting thrown at. Or what about sex and sexuality? Like our culture says, it's just a a raw desire. Like say yes to it. Do what you want to do in the way that you want to do it. And yet Jesus comes along with a very different voice about sex and sexuality that's not popular in our culture. What about marriage and singleness? What about money and possessions? What about parenting? What about work and identity? On and on and on we could go. The voice of Jesus has something very different to say. And here's what's so hard for you and I, especially living in Oklahoma, is that if we were to do a poll, most of us would confess that Jesus is the son of God. But most of us also have a very, very hard time actually listening to what he says. And here's the whole point. If he really is who the father says, There's only one thing left for us to do. It's to listen and to obey. This changes everything for us. A few years ago, we preached through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And this was the very first time that it hit me like a ton of bricks that Jesus is not just my savior. He's also my teacher. He's a savior to be sure. He's not less than that, but he's so much more than just a savior. He's also a teacher. Did you know he spent three years walking around actually telling people how to live? He spent three years before he died on a cross showing us the way to the good life. He spent three years walking around showing us how to be human again and how to interact in relationships and how to to do the things that he's called us to do. And it's so much different than what I and my own wisdom or own desires want to do. But Jesus is a teacher. He's showing us the way to maturity and depth and full humanity and life and beauty and wholeness. And there's all these other voices and the father in this chapter is just standing and saying, this is my son, please listen to to him. He is the luminary. He is the one who knows. He has the way to life. He has beauty. He has maturity. He has depth. And I just want to invite you to to wrestle, like, is the way that Jesus invites you to live actually more beautiful than the way that your own heart tells you to live? Because if so, then this is actually what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to make the confession, he is the son of God, and I'm going to listen to him. Now, I won't lie to you that actually listening to Jesus is not easy. And often it's not only not easy, it's really hard. It's the hardest way to live. If you want an easy way to live, there's a lot of other options. But if you want to follow Jesus, it's going to be one of the hardest ways to live. But it will lead you to life and it will lead you to beauty because Jesus is so much more than just the son of God. He's so much more than the one that we should listen to. There's one other thing in the story that I think actually makes him stand out and stand far and above any other option out there. So let's wrap it up. I want to show you one last thing in this story. Look at verse nine. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. I love the disciples because Jesus is very, he's been very clear. Hey, I'm going to get rejected. I'm going to get persecuted. I'm going to get killed. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And every time he says this, you're going to see it a few more times in Mark. Every time they're like, rise from the dead? Like you're going to die? They are so confused about this that they don't even know what's happening or what's going on. Here's a few reasons why. Because in Jewish culture, there was only one resurrection that they were expecting, and it was at the very, very end of history when God would raise all people from the dead at the final judgment. So that was the only category they had. They had no category for in the middle of history, one man getting raised from the dead with nobody else getting raised from the dead. The second reason is because in their concept of what it meant to be the Messiah, you don't get rejected, you don't suffer, you don't get betrayed, you certainly don't die. If you're the Messiah, you rise to power and you kick Rome out. And they are so confused why Jesus keeps talking about death. Remember earlier when I'd said, wouldn't it be great to know what Elijah and Moses were talking with Jesus about? One Luke, we get told. Do you know what Luke tells us about their conversation with Jesus and Moses and Elijah? They were talking about the death of Jesus that was about to happen. Think about that. Elijah and Moses sitting with Jesus, maybe haven't seen Jesus in a long, long time. What are they catching up about? Hey, you're about to go to the cross, aren't you? Let's talk with you about the cross. And Peter in that moment, overhearing that discussion, interrupts them and still is doing what he did six days before. He's trying to get Jesus to not go to the cross. Hey, could I like make you a tent? Let's just stay here for a little bit. You don't have to go to the cross. You're being seen in all your glory. Let's just stay here. Yet Jesus is a savior who is so beautiful and so amazing that this was really why he came. Everything in Mark up to this point is leading us on this upward journey to the Mount of Transfiguration. And everything in Mark from this point on is leading us down the mountain to the death of Jesus that's gonna occur actually on the Mount of Crucifixion. Two significant mountains, and these mountains could not be more different. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is revealed in all of his glory. But on the Mount of Crucifixion, Jesus is revealed in shame. On the Mount of Crucifixion, Jesus is seen as in white clothes. But on the Mount of Crucifixion, Jesus is seen stripped of all of his clothes, hanging on a cross. The Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is surrounded by Moses and Elijah. But on the Mount of Crucifixion, he's surrounded by two criminals. On the Mount of Crucifixion, Jesus is covered in a bright cloud. But on the Mount of Crucifixion, Jesus is covered in darkness. The Mount of Transfiguration, Peter yells out, it's good to be here. But on the Mount of Crucifixion, Peter says, I don't know the man. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you hear the Father's loud and loving affirmation, this is my son. The Mount of Crucifixion, all you hear is the Father's silence. Here's the point. Jesus is revealed in glory, but there's even more glory than that. And that's the glory of him going to a cross for people like you and me that absolutely didn't deserve it. You can trust him because he died for you. You can obey him and listen to him because he actually was driven with so much love and affection for you that he would give his own life. This is the whole point 
of the story, not just to see him in his radiant glory, but to see him in his shame on the cross because it's seeing the glory and the shame of what Jesus has done for us that leads you and I to a place of complete awe. You really are the son of God and we really will listen to you. N.T. Wright says this, the mountaintop explains the hilltop. The mountaintop being the Mount of Transfiguration, hilltop being crucifixion and vice versa. Perhaps we only really understand either of them when we see it side by side with the other. Learn to see the glory in the cross. Learn to see the cross and the glory. And you have begun to bring together the laughter and the tears of the God who hides in the cloud. The God who is to be known and the strange person of Jesus himself. Jesus is the son of God. You and I now can make that confession. Listen to 